What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell's going on now? Well, what the hell is going on is that we have left behind, as listeners of this podcast know, hundreds of American citizens and thousands of Afghan allies, including Afghan Special Operations Forces. These are the elite of the elite, the guys that we brought to the United States for elite special operations training and then sent them back into Afghanistan. And these people served alongside our troops, saved their lives, and during the evacuation helped us evacuate American citizens and protect them from the Taliban. And then we'd left them behind. And they're stuck They're in safe houses. They're hiding from the Taliban. And the U.S. government doesn't seem to be lifting a finger to help them, except for one group of American veterans, special operations veterans called Project Exodus, which is doing what the U.S. government should be doing and running exfiltration operations to get these people out and get them into the United States. And we've got the leader of Project Exodus with us here today to talk about it. Mike Edwards is a terrific guy, and you're going to hear our interview with him. But I have to tell you, usually, I mean, Mark and I prep for these podcasts so that we can ask intelligent questions, or at least I can. And uh, <laughs> He needs a lot more prep than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I looked over at Mark during our interview, and we were told by Mike that we had abandoned people who were not just Afghan special forces, but Afghan special forces who were vetted by the U.S. government and brought to the United States to go through our elite special forces training schools. And we have left them there, and neither Mark nor I could believe it. Our jaws were... Right, we're on the table. I know, everybody's moved on. Sure, that's also last year. Let's talk about Omicron. Let's talk about China. But no, the United States has a debt of honor. We have a geostrategic debt. We need to help get these people out. And the fact that we haven't, to me, is just stunning. Plus, I would say to you is also that the story of what Mike and his team are doing is, I mean, this is James Bond stuff. Literally, the U.S. government has abandoned these folks. And so these special operators who served alongside them, who have done multiple tours in Afghanistan, these are like the elite covert operations, counterterrorism guys. These guys were not just interpreters. These guys were not just people who worked at the U.S. Embassy. We're talking about guys who were in the thick of battle with American soldiers. And when the U.S. government abandoned them, these guys said, well, we're not going to abandon them. These guys saved my life. They saved the life of my buddy. They protected our unit. They took casualties. And they are going and helping get these guys out. And not only is the U.S. government not helping, in some cases, the U.S. government is hindering them in their efforts to do it. It's both the best story and the worst story about America, Danny, because it's the worst story about America. It's the most shameful thing that our country has done, I think, in my lifetime to abandon these people and leave them behind. But also what is so great about America is that these special operators who have other jobs, who have lives, so many of them have retired and they've done their duty already. And they've stepped forward to take up the responsibility that the active duty forces of the United States should be doing and on the orders of the commander in chief. And when there was this vacuum, they stepped in to do the job and they are literally saving thousands of lives and exfiltrating people out of that country. And it is just both so inspiring 
and at the same time infuriating. Oh, I agree with you. It's infuriating. I don't know if people remember, but one of our earlier podcasts when we were talking about this, I mentioned the fact that Congressman Adam Kinzinger, he's now decided not to run again, but he's an Afghanistan vet and a member of Congress and was literally reduced to tweeting out a request. Hey, guys, anyone who can pilot 737, we'd really appreciate some help. And to coin a phrase, what the hell? that we have people who are being forced to stand in for our sovereign government, for our military, because they won't step up and extricate these people. And I know that, again, you know, the State Department, Ned Price has his line, you know, we're getting them out and we're getting them out slowly. And there is a concern about bringing in people who haven't been appropriately vetted. But when you start talking about people who have been brought to the United States before in order to study at special forces schools, people who worked with our special forces operators on the ground, I think we have a certain level of confidence about them. And yet, we're not scrambling to get them out the way we should be. Well, first of all, in terms of vetting, these are not like people who have been vetted by the State Department with their sort of random checks and, you know, Google search and all the rest of it. <laughs> we're, we're talking about literally we were putting the lives of our special operations forces in their hands. So these were vetted by our military, by our intelligence services. They had background checks like, you know, probably the Biden cabinet hasn't had in terms of review of their histories and their background. So these are highly vetted people. These are people who risked their lives for us. These are people who took casualties for us, and we're leaving them behind. And what Project Exodus is doing is they're not only helping them get out, but I mean, many of them, it's hard to get them out. They have a network of safe houses where they're protecting these people, where these people are hiding. They're where they're paying their where rent. They're paying they're their giving rent. Them food they're money, they're clothing. giving them food, clothing. They're supporting their families. They have no federal money behind this. They're literally taking donations day by day and trying to get this money, which may run out if they don't get more. And this should be funded by the U.S. government. This should be done by the U.S. done by the U.S. government, funded by the U.S. government. The CIA should be doing this. This shouldn't be Project Exodus. This shouldn't be a volunteer operation. This should be run by our government. And it's not. And if we don't, here's the problem, is that if we abandon these folks after everything they did for us, they love America because they've seen the best of America with these special operations forces. If we leave them behind and we don't get them out, their love for America will turn to hatred for America. And they could join the other side, either out of hatred for America or simply because they have no choice, because they're going to be cornered. And then we will have some of the most highly trained special operations forces trained by the U.S. You know, you talk about all the equipment that we left behind in Afghanistan. Would you want to have trained special operators who are trained by the U.S. government on the other side? I wouldn't. It's the most dangerous miscalculation I've ever seen. Every time we do an Afghanistan podcast and we talk to somebody about what's happening in Afghanistan, I'm just more gobsmacked every single time. Gobsmacked and infuriated. And the the just mendacity of this administration. You've heard us rant enough. You know what we think about this. We'd love you to hear from Mike. Mike Edwards is the founder of Project Exodus Relief. He served 22 years and 18 combat deployments in the Army, primarily in special operations with the Regimental Reconnaissance Company. He is the voice of Project Exodus and our interview for today. Here's our interview. It's great to have you, Mike. So tell us first for our listeners who are not familiar, what is Project Exodus? How did it get started? And why did you join this cause? So Project Exodus is a group of a lot of retired veterans, people who were in the military, maybe didn't retire. And then also people from different parts of the civilian sector as well. Government contractors, intelligence community people, professionals like that. We have a lot of people from academia too, college professors and stuff like that. So essentially, the way we started 
was me and a couple of my buddies working together, sharing intelligence back and forth, trying to get people out of Afghanistan. And uh, it got bigger. And so we shared it all in one group and started passing the intel back and forth to each other. And then after a while, we figured this thing's going to go a lot longer than what we thought it was going to go. So how can we be more effective? And we knew that there was other groups out there working this. So we reached across to those different groups and started trying to see how we could help them and how maybe they could help us. And then it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then as time went on, some of the smaller groups that just didn't have the assets or the determination to continue kind of folded. And we brought some of them in under us as well. And then it kind of turned into where we almost had to make this thing kind of like a business, even though none of us are getting paid, but we needed to be more efficient because things were getting bigger. So we were bringing in people to create awareness, to write articles, to do outreach and things like that. So it's grown a lot. And that's essentially where we are now. We've got probably 40 to 50 people that do this full time. And on top of their regular jobs, doing this full time in every aspect to try to save these people. And we're essentially a volunteer rescue organization slash resettlement organization is what we're trying to do. Trying to get people out of Afghanistan, make their transition to wherever they end up being, hopefully the United States, as seamless as possible. Mike, whenever I hear people dumping on the United States, we're not the greatest country in the world. We don't have lessons that we can give to other people. I say, well, our government may not be the greatest government in the world, but the American people really are the best. And it's people like you and the folks who you're working with who remind us what it is to be a great American. So first of all, thank you for doing what you're doing. And second of all, tell us a little bit. So, I mean, we know what these groups are doing in a sort of a broad sense. And you've just described to us a little bit of the mechanics of how you've come together. What is it that unites you? Well, ultimately, what unites us is our love to save other human beings. I mean, these people are human beings, regardless of what country it is and how they got in that situation. They're human beings that God put on this earth. And it's our job, if we can possibly do it, to help these people out. A lot of us had a connection to Afghanistan because we either served there in the military or in the civilian sector, were either tied to the government and had some sort of connection to it. I think what got us all tied in was we all had personal connections over there that reached out to us individually. And these people would say, hey, I'm stuck over here in Afghanistan. How can you help me? And then that's how we were in. And then we all started working together, and then it came together in this big group. I think that's what we all have in common. But you're exactly right. There's a lot of good people in America, and these Afghans know it, and they trust us, and they rely on us day in and day out to help provide them with food, firewood to keep their homes warm, gas heaters, curtains. People don't think about it, but curtains not only close your window and block the sun out, but in a cold country like Afghanistan, where heat is hard to come by in the wintertime, it's actually an extra layer of insulation over the windows. It also makes it harder for the Taliban to see you. True. Absolutely. Dual purpose there. But it also helps definitely keep the warmth in too. So we're buying curtains. We're also buying food for these people, providing housing, because some of these people have sold everything they have to include their houses, and we're staying with friends or relatives in and around Kabul to try to get a flight out. And some of them spend all their money on paying for the process to get an SIV, you know, a special immigrant visa. And then when they got it, they had nothing left. And so now they're sitting over there trying to survive and they're starving. So we're feeding them, housing them, keeping them safe as much as we possibly can. So just a quick question for our listeners, because I know that's going to be something as they listen to you tell these stories, talk about what it is you're doing, they're going to ask themselves, who is Mike Edwards? Tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to this. Well, I grew up in rural Alabama, 43 years old, and uh, or yeah, 
we'll be 43 years old this year and uh grew up you know just playing in the woods when my brother ended up growing up and graduating from foley high school down in south alabama near the gulf coast i decided i wanted to join the military so i joined the u.s army in 1996 actually in the national guard and then ultimately served 22 years including my national guard time about 18 years of my active duty time was spent in a special operations unit so i served in the 75th ranger regiment did a lot of deployments there with them to Iraq and Afghanistan, most of which to Afghanistan. After that, I went through the selection process and uh, operator training course pipeline for the Regimental Reconnaissance Company, which is a really selective, small, specialized unit within the 75th Ranger Regiment. A lot of people don't know about it, but we got a lot of specialized training there and had a lot of face-to-face interaction and one-on-one interaction with a lot of these Afghans. So deployed a bunch with that unit doing clandestine reconnaissance stuff. And then after that, moved on to the military freefall school out of Yuma, Arizona. Spent about four years out there teaching the nation's most elite soft warfighters, special operations warfighters, how to do tactical freefall insertion. And then after that, I got out or once I retired, I became a contractor. I was working on my own contracting and uh, training the nation's most elite soft special missions units and stuff like that. And military freefall, tactical insertion, basic and advanced techniques, and then also in surveillance and stuff like that. And so all those skills that I gathered over that 20-something year career really provided the skill set that I needed to end up kind of running this whole thing and then being able to tie the networks together because of all the people I've met throughout my career. That's amazing. Man, what a country that people like you step up to serve and do what you do. I'm just in awe of that. Can you tell us, you've been in Afghanistan, you've served in Afghanistan. These Afghan allies aren't just names in the newspaper. These are people you worked with. Can you tell me, first of all, how many people have you gotten out, both AMSITs and Afghan allies so far? And people are interested in stories. Can you tell me like your best story of a rescue that you were able to successfully carry out? All right, so for total numbers, we've rescued with our whole network that has now come underneath Project Exodus Relief or is associated with us and partnered. About 1,400 people we've roughly rescued so far. We were supposed to have another big group go out last week, but those flights got canceled. The last big move that we got out was about a week and a half, two weeks ago. We got 62 people out that week. And then things are kind of slowing down again now. It's been a kind of ebb and flow throughout the process. But one of the most, I'd say, inspiring rescue stories was there was this man who was an interpreter for the U.S. Army. And one of my team leaders was talking to him on a daily basis. You know, we call them handlers. That's the people that communicate with them day to day, help them process what's going on, letting them know about flights and stuff like that. So he sends me this depressing text from this guy. And you could read it on our site if you go in there and check to see all the details of it. But essentially, this guy said he sold everything that he had, kind of like what I said earlier, sold everything that he had, his entire house, all of his belongings, went to Kabul to get on a flight, to fly out, had no money. We sent him to Mazar-e-Sharif up there to get on a flight that we were told we could get him on through Department of State, and it ended up getting canceled. And he sat there for weeks, right, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And he finally came to us, and he said his little son, they would go to the shop in town and his son would say, hey, daddy, will you buy these for me? And he said, I will buy it all for you when we get to America. But right now we don't have the money. And his little kid was freezing to death. It was getting cold up there. They had a brand new baby that was about 10 months old that was freezing to death and they didn't have warm clothes. 
So his last plea for help was to reach out to us and tell us that sad story and that all he needed was to make sure that we would stay in contact with his wife because he said if he gets killed, if he dies trying to save his family, please stay in contact with his wife because she speaks a little bit of English. He just doesn't want his wife and their children's future to be dark if something were to happen to him. And then he said he's completely out of money. He's going to have to figure out what he can do to get money to survive. He only has enough money for food for maybe one or two days. So what we did is we got him money so that he could buy clothes and food. And then he sends these heartwarming pictures of his little children with these big, fuzzy, furry coats that they bought. And that made us feel good. So that was like one little piece of the success story. And then we kept pushing through the Department of State. They actually were able to get this guy on a flight. We sent them the sob story. And I guess that motivated them to get him on a flight. And so then we got him all the way to the United States. And they were so happy to be helped. To see that family that was struggling, gave up everything they had to come to the United States. And they thought they were going to starve to death. Their children were freezing to death. Yet we got them clothes to give them the hope that they needed to continue to trust us and rely on us. And then we were able to provide a flight for them and get them out of the country. That's awesome. That really is awesome. And we will let our listeners know how they can try to help what you're doing and try to help people who genuinely deserve it, who risk their lives for us, and whose families are now at risk, not just green card holders, not just Americans who've been left behind in Afghanistan, but people who supported our military, people who deserve special immigrant visas. One of the stories that I read was about Thanksgiving. And I know folks will love that story. Would you tell it for us? Yes. So two of the Afghan special operations guys that we got out, they were in Germany for a little while and then they made it on out to the United States and they finally got settled through a resettlement agency in South Alabama. They don't know anyone in the United States except for me. So they wanted to come down here and be close to me. So they went to Mobile, Alabama. They've been there about two weeks. And once I found that out, I reached out to them and said, hey, would you like to have Thanksgiving dinner with my family? And they said, absolutely. So my wife and I went and picked them up Thanksgiving morning and then took them to my mother's house. She lives right next door to my grandmother. So I went to my mom's house and got there and then family started coming in and then they got to spend time and talk to my family and get to meet people in my family. And they were really shy at first, but then they opened up as time went on. And then at the end of Thanksgiving, after eating all the good food and all that kind of stuff, they were very interested in spending more time with my mom, my stepdad, and then my grandmother, because they could tell that they were the elders. And that was... <laughs> I'm sure that was music to their ears. It was just amazing to see how different they are versus Americans. The grandkids are like, oh, grandparents, okay, and then they're out. They don't really care to spend a whole lot of time with them. These guys, grown men, were just really awestruck and just wanted to spend time close and talking to the elders because that was so important to them. And this warmed my grandmother's heart so much that she called me over a couple of days later and asked me if she could speak in private. I said, yes, ma'am. And I went over there and talked to her. And then she told me that she wanted to donate her car. She has a car, not brand new, but it's a used car and it's in great shape. I mean, any teenage kid would be happy to have it. And uh, she was getting ready to sell it, but she said, instead of selling it, I'd like to donate it to those guys as soon as they have a driver's license. And I said, well, if that's what you want to do, then I'm all for it. So that's what she wants to do. So she What a wonderful woman. Heart, and you, said. And you yeah. said that because Afghanistan obviously is a landlocked country, you took them to the beach for the first time? Yeah, we did. So we told them about the beach and asked them if they wanted to go. And so they did. 
So we took them down to the beach, showed them the beach. They thought that was awesome. They thought it was beautiful. They asked a lot about sharks, and I said, yeah, there's sharks there. <laughs> uh, but you don't really have to worry about it. There is a chance that you might get bit by a shark, but we don't really think about that too much. And then we sat there and took some pictures, and then after that, we took them back to their apartment in Mobile, Alabama, and they invited us in for tea and for little snacks there at their house. And it was awesome. And they ended up opening up to us about some of their family that were still in Afghanistan in need. After that, we left and they walked us out like we were super important. I mean, they're so respectful and they're so happy that we got them out of there that they show us the craziest amount of respect. It's just unimaginable. Well, you saved their lives. You deserve that respect. We feel humbled to be in the position to help them at all, even. Well, one of the things that makes your organization unique is you're not only running the exfiltration operations out of Afghanistan, but you don't just get them out. You also help them settle here in the United States, right? Yeah, we're trying to assist with that as much as we possibly can. We can help out a little bit here and there, but what we're trying to do is reach out to other organizations that specialize in that kind of stuff. So we don't plan on leaving them hanging, even if we can't personally support them. We're going to kind of help them through the whole process as much as we possibly can, because Imagine coming to a new country, you don't know anyone, you can barely speak the language for some of them. Most of our guys can speak English really well, but you're coming to a whole new country and you don't know anything. You don't know the laws, you don't know the rules. It could be super scary. I mean, these guys were asking me if it was okay for them to go for a run. They wanted to do workouts and get in shape and, you know, stay in shape. And they asked me if it was okay to go on a run around the apartment. I said, yeah, you can go for a run. They were afraid somebody would get mad at them for going for a run or that the police would arrest them. I said, no, you're fine. If the police mess with you for some reason, which they shouldn't, but if you look awkward for some reason and they pull you over, just call me and I'll talk to them, I promise. (laughs) One of the reasons they want to keep in shape is because it's a lot of these guys, it sounds like you're focused on both rescuing American citizens and Afghan special operations soldiers, right? So these are highly vetted highly trained American allies. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's correct. And the key thing is that they're vetted. So American citizens, LPRs, you know, green card holders and such, they're vetted by the U.S. government. Well, these guys were vetted by the U.S. military for years and years and years and fought loyally by our side more than anybody else. And they can be trusted. And not only that, think about it this way. These guys, if we just leave them, I mean, this is an amazing asset that we created over 20 plus years. If we just leave them in Afghanistan, they're going to slowly be killed off. We will lose that capability that we currently have to combat terrorism through them on the ground in Afghanistan. But if we rescue them, we can get them out of there, show them that we still support them, get their families out. And once their families are safe, these guys are already working for us. They will go back. They tell me all the time, hey, let me know when you want us to go back. We'll go back and fight for America. Yes. Wouldn't that be nice if America wanted to fight for itself? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then on top of that, the over the horizon strike capability that the president talks about that we have, that doesn't exist without these guys. These guys are the eyes and the ears. They're the network on the ground that gathers the intelligence. Without them, we're just sending drones over there to blow up a rock or to blow up a random family as a show of force if we can't effectively target them. If we don't rescue them, and time is running out on this, by the way. But if we don't rescue them, they're going to all be killed off. And in the worst cases, some of the smartest of the smart of them may be able to talk their way out of being killed by the Taliban in order to join the Taliban or ISIS-K or whatever. And we definitely don't want that to happen. So two quick questions from me. 
one, do you have a sense of how many of these folks are left behind? And two, you just said time is running out for them. What do you mean? Because I think people don't understand what our allies who are left on the ground there are facing up to and how many there are. Well, there's all total from the numbers of the groups that we have. There's probably about 3,500 Afghan special forces or commandos over there that I'm tracking. Just with Project Exodus, though, we have about 250 to 300 of the most elite of the elite Afghan special operators on our list. And that doesn't include their family and stuff like that. But that's about how many we have left. And what I mean by time is running out. So we pulled out of Afghanistan the way that we did. We can't change that. That's the past. And that was a debacle that led to the situation we're currently in. If we want to keep making mistakes, we can continue down this road and just leave these people over there to die. But if we want to rectify the situation, there's one thing that we can salvage before it's too late. And that's put some emphasis behind the U.S. government supporting getting these people out. If not, it's going to be exceptionally catastrophic for us in the future. Time's running out is because these guys are they're running out of food. A lot of them are starting to lose hope now, too. Are they at physical risk as well? Are they being hunted by ISIS, by the Taliban, by others? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're definitely at physical risk. All of these guys are in safe houses that we're funding. We're feeding them. So many of them, if not most of the soft guys, are trapped in their house, sometimes not even their house. It's a house that we've acquired for them, and we're essentially paying the rent for them in these houses. We're providing them food, money for supplies, medicine, blankets, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, how long can we do that? We can support what we currently have going on for six, eight months, maybe a little bit longer if we get more donations in. But what happens when we run out of money? We run out of money and kick these guys out on the street. They have no other choice but to be killed or, if they're lucky, go to the other side. And we darn sure don't want that. No, that's for sure. How much help are you getting from state and the Department of Defense? For the Afghan soft guys, absolutely none. The Department of Defense, I've been talking to some people via email, and they've helped out with a little guidance here and there. But I want to know what their official stance is on this. Do they plan on helping at all? I'd like to know. We've reached out to a lot of people and It's like no one from the government or the official channels within U.S. military or anything want to even talk to any of the groups. We're just trying to do what we know is right, and as long as we can do it. I just want to make sure I understood that correctly and our listeners understood that, just to emphasize this. These are Afghan special operations forces that have received the best, highest level training from the United States government, vetted by the United States government, risked their lives alongside our soft guys fighting the Taliban, and the Pentagon is doing nothing to help them? We have not heard anything officially. I've tried to reach out in multiple angles. We're trying to get retired generals and people like that to help us out, and they're trying to reach out, but we haven't gotten anything definitive. We don't know what their official stance is. I know that they know how valuable these guys are, because think about this. Some of these guys actually came to the United States and went through the Special Forces Qualification Course to be a Green Beret. They're Green Beret certified, and boom, now they're back in Afghanistan and we're trying to keep them out of the hands of the Taliban. That's just stunning. Mark and I are just I'm, sitting here We're speechless. just gobsmacked. The idea that we would take, I mean, these are the pointy edge of the sword in the fight against the Taliban. Highly trained. If these guys have no choice but to defect to the other side because their lives depend on it, we will literally have trained fighters for the enemy, for the Taliban. They will be the most 
dangerous enemy we have ever fought. They have the equipment now, and now they have the training, and they have all these elite soldiers. And here's another thing. A lot of these American citizens and LPRs, which is green card holders, that have gotten out, you know how they got out? With the assistance of the reconnaissance and the intel that these guys have been providing, they have been assisting us to get those people out. And now they're left there. So that's why I'm saying they're giving up hope because now they're starting to think that we used them to get our American citizens and other people out. I mean, they haven't specifically said that, but I've started to see in the last couple of weeks their morale decline because they see these planes and they hear about these planes going out all the time. They know that we're tasking them to move money. Like, because some of these guys that are not in hiding, some of the ones that we can move around, they are moving money back and forth. But not only that, just over the phone, even making connections, calling people, setting up rental properties that we can rent and put people in as safe houses, coordinating food deliveries and stuff like that. There are a few that are out there moving around that still have freedom of maneuver, and they've been helping us out a ton. And the guys, even all the ones that are in safe houses now, they were doing this in the beginning, but now they're all locked down to safe houses. So again, I just want to make sure I understand this. These are Afghan Special Operations Forces who helped rescue American citizens in the closing days of the evacuation, and then we left them behind, and the U.S. government is doing nothing to help you get them out. Yep, that is correct. They have helped facilitate all the networks that we currently have established to house people and keep them safe. And now they are all stuck in these same networks, stuck in the safe houses and can barely move themselves. We have a few that can still move, but most of them are locked down in safe houses, can't even leave their house, can't even see their families. For example, one of my guys specifically, he's an Afghan reconnaissance unit guy. So he's like the cream of the crop of all of the special operations guys over there trained to do clandestine reconnaissance and stuff like that. And he was doing a lot of reconnaissance work for me and passing intel back in the beginning. And now he's locked down in a safe house because the Taliban kept coming and they just missed him a few times. And his wife was pregnant. Well, his wife just had a baby last week or actually week before last, so about a week and a half old baby. And he still has not even seen the baby because his wife and children, they feel semi-safe at home but he can't even leave the safe house that he's in. He can't even go near there because if they see him there, not only if they catch him, let's say they don't catch him, then they know that he's still alive and they'll kill his family if they don't tell him where he's at. You know, we keep hearing from folks here in the U.S. that the Taliban is on their best behavior, that they really want USAID. And so this is the new Taliban. This is Taliban 2.0. It doesn't sound like for these guys, the Taliban has changed its stripes at all, that they're in such mortal danger. I mean, is the Taliban behaving or is the Taliban going out and executing people? So I can tell you, you know, a lot of times we use the word Taliban as the catch-all for terrorists over there. I will say that there are factions of the Taliban. They're all broken up across the country. And there is a faction of the Taliban that is helping. I actually have one of my sources that has connections and can communicate with them. He's actually being protected in a safe house run by the Taliban. They keep him safe. This is like an elite operative that's over there in a Taliban safe house. They're keeping him safe. And he has called to ask them to call off people that were surrounding certain houses. The Taliban have been going around and rounding people up. But from what I've seen, they're rounding up people, interrogating them to see if they're ISIS-K or Al-Qaeda or something. And then if they're not, they release them. That just happened today, actually. We had a guy that was captured. The Taliban interrogated him. I asked my guy, I said, hey, do you know if they can release him? And they determined that he was innocent and they released him. 
they didn't do anything to him. They didn't beat him up or anything like that. Now, ISIS-K, we know for a fact, they're going around killing people. They're looking for these guys and just straight killing them. They don't stand a chance with them. And then there's also Pakistani ISI has operatives in the country under the Haqqani network. And they're actually over there hunting down people and killing them. They're killing girls and children. You name it, they're brutal. Yeah, they are brutal. My exit question, if you can give us your wish list, not just, obviously, financial support for your organization, not just better support or some support from the U.S. government, but what do you need? I mean, I've seen pretty good lists, you know, that people need accelerated approval. They need more lily pad availability. They need uh, more support for volunteer efforts. Tell us what you think. If you had a priority list from the Biden administration, what would you ask for? Well, I think the ultimate thing that we need is communication, a direct link of communication to the government and through DOD on what their stance is on evacuating these Afghan soft guys and then what they want us to do to help them achieve that goal because we're willing to help. We have the ability to get them on flights and stuff like that. Just the flights keep getting shut down. We can keep them alive for a certain amount of time, but not indefinitely. So we need to know what their stance is, and we need them to reach out and see how we can work together to help them get these people out of there, because it's that critical. But it seems like nobody cares that these guys are over there being killed. That's why we're trying to speak about it as much as we possibly can, so that people know how critical it is. What happens if we don't get them out? What happens if we do? It's a win-win if we get them out. If we don't get them out, this catastrophic event will get that much more catastrophic. I'm just amazed because what you're doing, the U.S. government should be doing this. It shouldn't fall. On, it shouldn't fall on our veterans. And the idea that you have stepped forward to do the job that the government should be doing and the government isn't helping you and in some ways is hindering you is just absolutely stunning to me. Yeah, we never thought it would be like this. We thought we would be communicating with DOD and Department of State. We figured... We would have this whole thing hashed out in a month, maybe two months max. Here we are coming up on Christmas. And there's a lot of people still there. And some of the most valuable people that we should have gotten out right after the American citizens. But yet there is no pathway to get them out. And every attempt that we make gets stopped. We've even had other groups who have reached out to countries and asked them if they would take on some of these Afghans off. And they said, okay, yeah, we'll take them. And then come to find out later on that the current administration has gone behind us and slammed the door on that. So, Exit question for me is very simple. Uh, shameless self-promotion here. What can our listeners do who are as horrified as Danny and I are by what you've said? What can they do to help you? How can they contribute? How do they find you? Give us your coordinates so that our listeners can reach out and help. Yeah, I appreciate that. If they want to check out what we're doing and help us out, they can go to blog.proexodusrelief.com. That's our main site there. They can see what we have done. They can see success stories, and they can also read about what's currently going on there. If they want to donate, they can contribute there as well. And then what the biggest thing they can do is reach out to anybody they know, any politician they know, and pitch a fit over this. Our country's national security is at risk here. If we can't get these guys off, we just leave them over there. It's not going to be good for us in the long run. 
Mike, thank you for everything you're doing and thank you for your own service and thank you to your family for sharing you with the American people. I'm brokenhearted to hear what you're saying, but I'm so grateful and I know Marcus and I know everyone who listens is so grateful that you're stepping up. Thank you a ton and happy, happy holidays. Same to you and I appreciate y'all having me on. Thanks so much. Uh, it definitely means a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Danny, as that interview came to a conclusion, I just looked at you and the look on your face and on my face, the idea that one, the government is not only not doing this, but is not helping the people who have stepped forward to do it is stunning. And especially the Pentagon, the institution that they actually brought these people to U.S. military bases to train them and they're content with leaving them behind in Afghanistan. I mean, gosh, I pray that isn't true. But I mean, Mike would know if they were helping because his organization is the one that's doing it. They're funding all that safe houses. They're in contact with all these guys. And the Pentagon doesn't seem to be doing anything to help them. Well, you know what this made me think about? So I think we've sort of established that these guys are out there trying to serve our interests and to do the right thing without the kind of support that they need. But what it made me think was, what else are we not doing? How have we betrayed others who have stood with us? Have we done the same thing in Iraq? Are we doing the same thing in other places? Is this who the United States is? Because maybe there's something that you and I and the people who we talk to and know don't understand. Maybe we let people down all the time. I mean, I know we've let the Kurds down. I know we've let the Syrian people down. But maybe this has become our thing. And if that is the case... We need some serious rethinking about the people leading our governments, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, because this is unconscionable. I couldn't agree more. I'm stunned. We went into this interview just thinking this is a worthy cause that you all should know about, and we wanted to bring your attention to it. And the more I listened, the more stunned and angry. I didn't think I could get angrier than I was about Afghanistan, and Mike managed to do it. I hope you all feel the same way we do. But if this is something that's touched your heartstring and you want to help, definitely reach out to Project Exodus because they're doing this. The government isn't doing this. They're doing this on their own. These are special operators who literally many of them are retired. They did their time. They served their country. They did their duty on the front lines fighting the bad guys. And they're now going back to help both American citizens and the people who saved American lives and helped us defeat the terrorists. So uh, I'd encourage you to support them in any way you can, even if it's just telling other people about it and telling them to listen to this podcast and listen to this interview so people know about it, because I think too few people understand what's really happening. Well, our gratitude goes out to Mike Edwards for everything he's doing, to John Andrasik on Pfeiffer Fighting, who told us about this and who we had on the podcast talking about his activism in the entertainment community to try to get people to step up. But most of all, thank you to our listeners. We keep coming back to this, and sometimes there's something more sexy out there. Sometimes there's something that's on the front pages. But just because it isn't on the front page doesn't mean that it doesn't deserve our attention and yours. This is about the honor of our country. This is about people who fought and died for us, and they shouldn't be forgotten just because they're not on page A1 anymore. The, the media maybe have moved on, but we can't as a country move on. And so we're going to keep coming back to this topic because we have promised to never forget, and we're not going to forget. And if you're on this ride with us, we know you don't want to forget either. Amen to that. Thanks for listening, folks. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.